Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm here with Matt Leach. Hello. Hello, sir. How are you? Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm really good. Yeah. How are you going? Really good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Before we go any further, right. I need to give a shout out to Streamtime, who is a major supporter of ADR and everything we do. It's great to have a partnership with a team that really gets the creative industries and is actively trying to improve how we both manage our time and also manage our well-being and mental health with Never Not Creative. Just go to streamtime.net to get all the information and a free account to try out the software. Do you know how we use Streamtime? We pinch their amazing content strategist. So um, shout out to Johanna, uh, who's been helping us out with all things digital, which is you know helping us kind of interact a little bit more online, us old fuddy-duddies um, <laughs> doing the internets. So true. The ADR family is growing. That's so true. it's very exciting. It's great to have her on board. Um, so yeah, shout out to Johanna. Enough about that. Who do we have on this episode? On this episode, we're speaking to Steve Beatty, founder and principal of Meld Studios. The conversation went everywhere. Yeah. We started talking about cycling, mm. uh, which I really have no idea about. Right. Yeah. I was BMX bandit. In fact, the only bike I have at the moment is a BMX. Well, so this is the funny thing. I have exactly the same BMX as you remember. Right. Yeah. We, we had this, uh, it was a meeting of minds when mm. we both realized we were BMX riders. Yeah. You're like, is that my bike? <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Yeah. But I'm, yeah, feeling my age riding that, um, riding that BMX. I'll tell you what. Mine, mine is a flat tyre. So oh, is that your excuse? Yeah, yeah that's my excuse. <laughs> I have a flat tyre. Yeah, I have a flat back. <laughs> um, but I really, I, I guess, you know, Steve Batty is one of those people who's been around the user experience, you know, design scene before, you know, a lot of us knew what UX was. And, um, you know, just talking about something as seemingly simple as the design of bike lanes in Sydney, whether you're a cyclist or a motorist or you've got no interest in any of that, it, it is like an interesting metaphor to to kind of open up all these other conversations that we had. And what, he is one of those people you could sit down and just kind of unpick something quite complex. and Or, and just, or something so simple that he can show you a whole different way of looking at things. We talked yeah. a lot about worldview. Right. And uh, and your listeners will hear when I my brain explodes because he, he just says something really simple and I just go, oh, my God, that actually explains – Everything that I've been kind like of a like, little clicking, clicking moment. We should add sound effects. Yeah. Like when the penny <laughs> drops. <Yeah. laughs> Great. Well, let's, let's jump get, in. Let's get to it. So, Steve, is it true you don't listen to podcasts? You've never heard Australian Design Radio before? Embarrassingly, Matt, no, um, but I don't listen to podcasts at all. So it's not you; it's it's me. Not, not taking it personally. I've, uh, don't yeah, take I've, it personally. I've heard that. It's I've heard that many it's times the, when people are breaking up with me. It's the format of listening to other people talk. I think mm-hmm. um, I am happy with the content that you see, and I'm happy to read transcripts of what people have been talking about. But there's something about podcasts just struggle with what about say talk shows on tv or something like god that? no no <laughs> so it's god just, no it's just people talking yeah maybe <laughs> because i don't get to <laughs> i might listen to this one <laughs> ah. see, see i'm the opposite I, i'm moving more and more to the audible more right. and more audiobooks i just I, I find that way of taking in information really easy and quick mm. do i haven't really tried the audiobook format yet mm-hmm I can see how that would be efficient, especially when I'm cycling. Um, So at the moment, I either don't listen to anything when I'm riding, uh, and I I ride a lot, but maybe... How how much is a lot? uh, To 250Ks a week. Wow. Wow, that that is a lot. It keeps me occupied, but it, it sort of translates into eight to 10 hours of riding which is a fair amount of time to not be doing anything else. So if you could combine listening, something like that, maybe. It's like a life hack, just yeah. doubling up. Yes, right? Like how can I be more productive and how can I be yeah. more effective and the rest of it? And there's another part of me that says, but that's not why I cycle. Yeah, that's really interesting because I listen to a lot of audio content and listening to a lot of parenting books now because I have a newborn. <laughs> so I'm currently listening to Crib Sheet, which I'm just giving a shout out because it's an amazing book. I was at the gym, I'm back at the gym and I'm listening to, and it was talking about like 
birth and all this sort of stuff. And I and my my head one of my headphones dropped out, and I just panicked because I thought, oh, maybe someone at the gym is going to hear me like listening to this weird stuff. And I was thinking, just how much of a weirdo I kind of am. But I always go to the gym, like listening to books or listening to podcasts. I'm like, cool, I'm doing two things at once. That's great. Hmm. So when you're cycling now, what do you what do you do? You just meditate, basically. Right. I try and get into a flow. I try and just think about what my body's doing, the space that I'm moving through. When I'm riding in and around Sydney, you need to keep an ear out for traffic. You need to be aware of your surroundings and that kind of thing. So there's a part of that that makes you go, to what extent do I want to be distracted from the riding? I go riding, you know, and I'll set out and I'll ride... 100 kilometers, 150 kilometers from home, you know, out and back again. And I'll do these loops out through the countryside. And and there are whole stretches where there just aren't any cars around. There just aren't any concerns around anything other than yourself and your surroundings. I kind of like that. At the same time, you do get this sense that, well, maybe I'm, I'm not making the most effective use of the time. But really, for me, a big part of hopping on a bike and going for a ride is the mental clarity that comes from it, that ability to disconnect from work, from finances, from staff, from projects, from clients, and just be more one with yourself and, and with your surroundings. Do you find yourself drifting off and thinking about, oh, that project that we haven't quite solved or <laughs> taxes coming up? Normally not like when that. I'm writing, you, okay. which is why it's such a, an oh. effective – I mean, it's, it's very easy to just think about the rhythm of what you're doing mm. and to not really let your mind drift into worries. There's a saying that, you know, like you never get off a bike in a worse mood than you got on. You, you'll always improve your mood by going for a, a ride. I've learned the hard way that that depends on how you come off the bike. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hopping off the bike versus being knocked off at are two very different ways to dismount. So the, the latter tends to have a, a bit of a, a shift in your mood. But uh, by and large, going for a ride is something that will help me relax, help me refresh, help me reset. If it's the start of the day, like this morning, I was on the bike for about 75 minutes, 30-odd kilometers, you know, out around dawn. It's beautiful. Mm. Really, really nice way. As a service designer yeah. and a cyclist, mm -hmm. how do you feel about the design of the cycleways in Sydney? Very, very obvious in Sydney that cars are our number one priority and somewhere in a distant third, fourth, or fifth is active forms of transport, which includes cycling, scooting, roller skating, rollerblading, and walking. All of those things take a backseat to cars. Mm. And cars, private vehicles, taxis, then buses, trucks, commercial vehicles, all of those, vans, tradies, every, everybody else, and then you start talking about people who are making their own way around, which is insane given the economics mm. of different yeah. modes of transport. Like if you were to look at where you get the most value as a society from the your investment in transport infrastructure, you would completely flip that around. You would invest in making a city walkable rideable, being able to scooter around it, rollerblade, like any of those sorts of things, people-powered transport, and then you would start to go, and now we'll look at buses, and then we'll look at light rail, trams, yep. train, metro-type things, and only after all of those things have been done well do you start to say, well, where do we fill the gaps with commercial and private vehicles? Right. And we've got it completely wrong. Mm. Then you say, well, let's critique the result, and the results is fragmented, terrible mess. I picked up a map of Sydney Cycleways yesterday. I was in a bike store, mm -hmm. as I'm, I want to do. Our studio is above a bicycle store. It was probably one of the most <laughs> dangerous decisions I've ever made commercially for myself. Where's Steve? He's this, downstairs. He's downstairs <laughs> talking, <laughs> down, talking to the workshop guys. But they had these little maps of uh, Sydney Cycleways. 
And the intent is it's to help you get around, mm-hmm. right? To identify the safe routes where you can ride and, and this kind of stuff. And it's just this terrible, terrible patchwork of cycling infrastructure mm. that in some places is really, really good. And in other places, it just dries up or disappears. I don't need to be a cyclist to look at some of that sort of stuff and just shake my head. Yeah. You know, I, and unfortunately, I, and, and one of the things about us as a company, about Melt Studios as a company, um, and about the work that I do sort of personally, is to try and address a lot of that mm. just boneheaded stuff. You know, like society is full, like the way in which we, I'll I'll say the way in which we design our society, but so much of it is simply thrown together and not really, there's no real intent behind it, no real sort of design that really goes into it. So much of it is just boneheaded, just stupid. And if you have the opportunity to just highlight the insanity of it, Quite often, people will look at it and go, well, that's just daft. Like, right. th- there's absolutely no sense to that. Like, that could only have been an oversight rather than a deliberate choice. Right. So let's fix it because it's clearly something that, you know, and, and, when we, and, and maybe it's not worth investing in a fix for just it. But the next time we do something around that space, let's take care of that kind of stuff. Right. And we, we see it all the time in service design projects. You go and look at an organization, you'll talk to customers, you'll talk to frontline staff. Frontline staff are a wonderful source of insight about. We have this view that when when organizations don't take into account what their customers really want from them, which is most of the time, and they build up these sort of big legacy infrastructures, their physical environments, their technologies, gradually those two things become like the misalignment between those two things, between that infrastructure and what your customers actually want from you becomes apparent. And one of two things ends up happening. Either your customer gets frustrated having to deal with that misalignment themselves and you see customers leave, you know, like they get just okay, you obviously don't care about me or you don't understand me. I'll go somewhere else where they're easier to deal with or your staff fix it. And your staff run around behind the scenes going, oh, I'm really sorry. Those two systems don't talk to one another. I'll just bring it up on two screens and I'll fix Mm. it for you. And you end up with staff getting frustrated and and overworked because no one's listening to them. The people in the management are probably sitting there going, oh, it all seems seems okay. Everything seems to be working, right? So you go and talk to them. You watch what they're doing and you ask them, why did you just bring up two different programs on, you know, about that one customer on those two screens? And they right. go, well, those two systems don't talk to each other. So I get this number from here and I copy it and I paste it into this database over here and I do a search and that brings, right, okay. Shouldn't those two things talk to each other? Oh, we tell them that all the time and nobody ever listens. <laughs> yeah. And when you go and redesign that service, inevitably... You know, like you're talking about changing large-scale infrastructure, be it technology or, or physically, which can take time. And, yeah. and those outcomes might be three years, five years down the track, which is great. You've got a clear roadmap of where you're going to. But the laundry list of just dumb shit that you can fix from day one <laughs> is phenomenal. Right. And, and stuff like sending someone a letter of acceptance. So we did a piece of work for a university once. And I held up, like, to a room of, you know, executives and decision makers, I held up two letters far enough away that they couldn't really read them. And I said, which one of these do you think is the rejection letter? And which one of these do you think is the acceptance letter based on how they look? Now, like, they're exactly the same. So, yeah, they are. One of them launches a lifetime of learning and a career, <laughs> and the other says, bad luck, go somewhere Not interested, else. yeah. Right? And you've designed them so that they look exactly the same. <laughs> exactly <laughs> the same. Like, what the hell are you thinking? 
you know, like surely you want to celebrate that moment because the student sure as hell is. Mm. You know, they're jumping around their living room right now with their family because they just got accepted to your course. At least that's the way you want them to feel. Mm. Instead, you're sending them a letter that looks like the results of a rectal exam. It's just absurd. (laughs) And that's the kind of stuff that you can fix with five minutes work in a Google Doc template you know, before it gets merged, it's a nothing fix. But no one ever looked at it and went, actually, that's stupid. Mm. That is just stupid. Mm. Do you ever hold off from fixing them all straight away and kind of piecemeal it out so then? The way in which we work is that often we're not fixing those things. So in the example of that letter, they were perfectly capable of changing the design of the letter. They didn't need us to do it at all. They just needed us to take the time and the perspective to point out to them it was worth fixing, that there was actually something wrong with it. That's often the case in the organisations that we work with. We're often working with large organisations. They have teams of people who do marketing and do advertising. You know, like they've, they've got an ad company, they've got a technology partner, they've got a UX agency or whatever it might be who does all of those things, but they're not necessarily thinking about it in a way that allows them to critically assess how successful it is and also think about how might we do it differently. Having had those things pointed out and clarified for them and not and having an end result that's coherent and consistent across environments where one company couldn't necessarily comment. So one of the other challenges often is that the UX team doesn't talk to the marketing team right. or the IT team doesn't talk to the asset management team who looks after your branch network. You know, like they have nothing to talk about until you start saying, well, you know, your technology resides in that branch and those two things need to be integrated to deliver an experience that's going to successfully deliver this service. But up until that point, they never spoke. Now that they are talking, they're quite capable of going, okay, well, we'll roll that out. So it's often the case, though, that you are balancing the resource requirements of those long-term things against some stuff that you can get happening straight away. So it's it's almost never the case that you can just go, well, let's solve all of these things, and then we'll go off and do the the long-term stuff. Doing some of those little things early, though, gets people a sense of, oh, momentum builds, we're making improvements, yeah. people start to feel happier, They're, they feel more positive about the fact that, you know, well, that's that's that thing I brought up when those guys were here a few weeks ago. You know, like I said, that that didn't make sense to me and, and now it's changed. Oh, like that's mm-hmm. that's wonderful. Like all of that helps. That's almost change management and organizational psychology though rather than design although for us these days it's just part and parcel of the design work that we do yeah and i i wanted to ask about that because describing meld to mm. people mm. is a really hard job because yeah. you do very yeah. very very diverse things how yep. how do you describe I describe us as a design studio who work with organizations to better understand their customers, better understand their staff, and redesign what they do to align them and their capabilities with what those people need. What it is that we're designing and what it is that that organization does is all over the place. You know, like we've worked in 15 different industries and we've worked across the country and we've worked in government and we've worked in the private sector and for-profit and not-for-profit. And really different outputs. Very different outputs as well. You know, we helped a cafe chain identify an opportunity to open a country motel chain. Right. That was fun. Um, (laughs) That wasn't the brief. Yeah. The brief was to help them understand how they attracted customers and why people came back to them. Like they were successful. They were really Mm. successful, but they didn't really have a good handle on what it was. And once we started to play back to them why people came to them, we had that conversation about it's it's really not the cafe that's you. Like you're not a cafe business. You're a business that has happened to choose cafes to deliver this set of experiences for people. But you could just as easily run a hotel. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Within a week, they were running well, a hotel. I mean, yeah, it's 
a few weeks later, and this one like that that has really stuck with me. Yeah. And the more I think about it, the more the more I'm intrigued by that notion. And then now they're now going ahead and doing it. But you know, you work with the Australian Taxation Office, or you work with the Bureau of Statistics, or you know, get to work in transport, or we get to work with education. Um, you know, those are all very very different problems but it's the approach and the mindset the collaborative nature of what we're doing we try and invite people in to the process and involve them in the process of designing their context so you know we, we don't come in and do design to you do you call it co-design uh not often it, that's what it is yeah. um i've 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 seen the academic literature but it's <laughs> We talk about designing with. Yeah. You know, we design with you and your customers and your staff. And that's that's a phrase that people understand. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask is looking at, at your outputs, hmm. which which are incredibly, even more incredibly diverse, how, how are you doing? Is that within the studio you already have people who could do that or are you bringing in people all the time? Mostly it's within the studio environment, those, wow. those sorts of outputs. Now, occasionally... It requires a skill set that we don't have in the studio, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. We have a very diverse group of people who work at Melbourne, and the backgrounds the backgrounds range from you know traditional industrial design, architecture, graphic design, visual communications type people. We've got interaction designers sociologists, psychologists, anthropologists. My initial degree is in applied mathematics and statistics. So it's it's a, a bit diverse. And then, you know, we've done some work where what we were really trying to do was convey the struggles that people in wheelchairs and on crutches, people who have seeing impairments and hearing impairments, have navigating public spaces like train stations. And we did that with video. And we had a videographer that we brought on to capture that so that we could simply focus our energy on interacting with those people and trying to understand what those challenges were and and why they were having them to help inform some work we were doing around train station design. But we we really wanted that storytelling and narrative to come through. And so we brought in somebody who specializes in it. But a lot of the illustration work that you might see, the large scale sort of maps and, and service journeys or customer journeys that we might do, we've produced, you know, 90 page glossy magazines as reports for a board of directors, you know, like it, that sort of writing, that's, that's internal. You just mentioned education as well. And yes. I, I wanted to talk about that quickly for two reasons. <laughs> I'm surprised Matt wants to talk about education. <laughs> because you've got an amazing number of qualifications. Because you've got you've got two master degrees, yes, and then also a bachelor's degree in the mathematics, as you talked about. Yes, are you just yes. obsessed about learning? I enjoy learning. I enjoy formal education, although I'm quite happy to learn things through reading. So I, I read it quite a bit. I'm a amateur follower of economics. In addition to so I studied applied mathematics and statistics after studying a year of medicine and hating it. Right. Absolutely hated <laughs> it. I studied mathematics and statistics for four years and just loved it. Absolutely loved it. What did you hate about medical? The way in which it was taught. It wasn't audio it was form. Bro- was it? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it, it wasn't um, the audio format of it. It was the fact that I, so I was at Sydney University, it's a very traditional medical school, one of the oldest in the country. And they taught it as minute, discrete facts about bodies. Right. Okay. Right. That completely in, in, not connected. No. <laughs> just just minutiae down to, you know, biochemical level or, you know, like points on your body or the name of some. It was very, very <laughs> fragmented 
atomized, memory-based. There was no sense of system or complexity to it at all. There was certainly no fucking humanity to it. It was, <laughs> it was the most... I mean, considering what it is you're meant to be doing with that education, I, I got through, you know, however many weeks and months of that that I had to sort of go through, and it was just not the way... I view the world and like to interact with the world. I'm much more, I, I much more enjoy understanding the systems and trying to understand how systems work. So an applied mathematics degree was all about, uh, and and my particular area of study in it was all around modeling physical systems using mathematics and either using discrete equations or statistics and statistical models. Loved it. Had the opportunity to work in it you know, was offered uh, sort of scholarships to do master's programs where I'd work for a bank and do financial modeling for them and do a, a master's degree in applied finance. And it's just like, no, no. <laughs> God, no. Um, and so I, I actually went and did a year of archaeology at the University of Sydney. I went back to the University wow. of Sydney, studied archaeology as a postgraduate student. As far as I'm aware, I'm the only person ever to have registered uh, or enrolled in that course. And the reason, and the only reason that course existed was to get me enrolled. Right. So <laughs> I was sitting there, you know, sort of thinking about my future and, and wanting to continue some form of study, not being happy with jobs in mathematics or statistics. How and old I, are you at this point? Uh, 20... So it was late in my 23rd year, I guess, or, or just late in my 22nd year. So 1993, we're talking. I walked down the road from the University of Technology to the University of Sydney into the main quadrangle, that old 1830s sandstone building that we've got there at Sydney University, which is where the School of Archaeology sits. Knocked on the door to the School of Archaeology and asked if I could talk to somebody. Just graduated from mathematics up at UTS. I'd like to study archaeology. Now, A, nobody ever does that. Nobody ever knocks on the door of school and says, may I please study archaeology? Like, it just never happens. Anyway, this woman poked her head out from back behind, like the office behind, and went in a, in a slightly English accent. Did I just hear you correctly? It was the dean of the school. Right. Uh, a woman by the name of uh, Judy Birmingham, who was wonderful. She was about 64 at the time. Over the course of the next two hours, she basically made up a program for me to study. Love it. Um, right. She just loved the idea of someone who was interested in archaeology and interested in mathematics, because normally art students aren't interested in mathematics. Mm. That's where the science students go. If you're interested in math, you go somewhere else. And they end up with people who don't really understand quantitative data at all. And there is a lot of it in archaeology. Yeah. So they were, they were thrilled with the idea of me coming and studying archaeology. Great. <laughs> We've found him. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> going. Anyway, after like I, I was able to do that for a year and then work got in the way, I ended up studying e-commerce in 2001, 2002 uh, as a master's degree at the university at the Macquarie Graduate School of Management. Went on and, and completed an MBA with them afterwards just sort of kept going yeah. um you know and ended up with the two degrees but since then i've focused on working and learning through work so how does with with a past like that yeah mathematics archaeology uh -huh. hmm. how did service design fall become the next logical step yes because it doesn't look like it no no the key connection for me is that in order to do service design well, you really need to understand systems, how, and the service is effectively a system, but it sits within an organization, which is also a system, and understanding socio-technical systems is important. And it's difficult, because people are difficult, and that makes it interesting. So. You know, there's a part of me that has always been interested in systems. Medicine and archaeology are both attempts at understanding people. 
mathematics was just a nice way of describing the physical world and understanding the world that we exist within. Service design is a good way to do those things and get paid for it yeah. and have a real impact on our society while you're at it. That's a nice combination for me. Yeah. Turns out I get to work with wonderful people at the same time and people who aren't like me. Whereas if I went into finance, they would all be like me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's not a good thing. Yeah. It's mm. just not a good thing. How important is kind of diversity in oh. in a studio for working, I mean, particularly in your field, like particularly in service design? I think it's increasingly critical in every design field. Mm. I think the more homogenous your project teams are or your studio is, the less likely you are to be competitive in the future when it comes to design. And the reason I say that is the sorts of challenges that we're being asked to understand, we designers are being asked to understand and tackle are becoming more complicated. Now, that doesn't matter whether you're working in industrial design, you're being asked to understand issues of sustainability, energy usage, materials, you know, uh, 360 sort of uh, looped life cycles of products and and not just understand what went into making it, but what you're going to do with it at the end, what might come out of the manufacturing process that might be fed in, you know, like what are your offcuts and where, what are you going to do with them? Mm. Not just the design of yep. the thing like you used to be able to do. Same in architecture, same with us. We, we're not allowed, we, it's increasingly difficult to get away with a narrow focus on whatever the thing was. Right. You know, generating waste in, in any kind of form and in any kind of environment is frowned upon, to put it that way. But also a whole host of ethical questions around so if I look in the technology realm and I start to say, well, you know, what are the ethics around automation? You know, if I automate something, well, the flip side of that is putting people out of work. So mm. what am I what am I doing as yeah. a designer in that? You know, right. Like, is is that my job? My job is to put other people out of jobs. That's that's what success looks like for mm-hmm. me. There are some real questions in that. Now, for diversity, to tackle those things well. You want people who will come at those questions from very different educational backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, philosophical backgrounds. You want people who can articulate those positions in a positive way and in a constructive and critical way in an environment that allows you to move backwards and forwards across some of these thresholds of what's acceptable or not and arrive at solutions that are a lot more broad and and complex than we used to have to worry about. So unless you've got that diversity represented in the design team, and it doesn't have to come from the studio. It can come from your client. You can reach out to the community, which is another way in which design is changing. Like who's involved in the design process is absolutely changing. Partly because you want that diversity of thought, philosophy, education, Opinions, perspective, yeah. experience to be having input into how we tackle some of these things. So we've talked about your education, but mm. how, how do you... Are you looking for that sort of um, same sort of education in the people you're employing? And I guess that kind of that willingness to keep learning. I mean, I guess that's kind of straightforward, though, isn't it? No. Of course you would. No. So, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that we find where you've got an educational background that is simply extended. So I studied industrial design and then I did a master's in industrial design and I did a PhD in industrial design, you know, so I've been studying for 14 years. This is exactly the question I tried to ask. (laughs) (laughs) That's not as useful 
as someone who studied industrial design and then studied material science yep. or then looked at ceramic engineering because they were interested in dot, 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 or they went and studied French literature because why not, or traveled for a year, which is a form of learning, mm. we find that educational backgrounds that expose the person to at least two worldviews are a trigger for reflection about how strongly held any one view of the world should be. And that starts someone on a process of saying, well, I'm going to take that perspective not as etched in stone, but as a working hypothesis, and now I'd like to hear yours. And yours is going to be equally valid. It might be polar opposite to mine based on our same, on our interpretation of that same data, but I'm going to treat it as valid and we're going to see where they contradict each other and, and maybe how they agree with each other. Right. And we'll see where that gets us. Hmm. Sometimes we see that in people who speak multiple languages, who've lived in more than one country yep. or one culture, who've maybe studied two very different things, who've switched careers. It's the life experience and the educational frameworks that are quite different that run people through that process or force people to go through that process of saying the world isn't simple. It's not one worldview. It's not that you don't understand. It's that your framework for viewing the world is different. Mm -hmm. And so you see the same things I do and your interpretation of those things is very different. That in itself is an enlightening moment for that person to say, well, we should have lots of different people look at that same data. Yeah. Right. Right? Mm. The, the diversity point then becomes obvious to everybody. Yeah. If you're all like me and think and, you know, your educational framework, your worldview, your cultural background, religious background, the language that you speak, etc. If you're all the same as me, there's really no point us all being here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like all we're doing is sharing the workload. Mm. We're not actually providing diversity at all. Right. What we need is someone who emigrated from Somalia. What we need is someone who studied economics instead of design. What we need yep. is someone who, you know, has a background in particle physics because why not have a particle physicist in the room? Mm. You know, like how much could it hurt? As long as we hide <laughs> the lasers, we're fine, right? You know. Just no medical medical stuff. No. No. <laughs> Great. I want to get on to talking about community initiatives because mm. you've been very involved in lots of lots of different um, sort of, I guess, non-commercial community-based yeah. things, including Good Design Australia, mm -hmm. UX Australia, yep. and also UX Book Club and IXDA. Yes. So I, there's a question in here somewhere okay. um, just around how important you you sort of see these community community things and, and what keeps you motivated to stay involved in, in so many. I don't believe it's – I don't think it's realistic for us to expect, given what I've just been saying about diversity of thought and, and the rest of it, for that to come from our educational system. Right. Some of it will. Some of the foundations will. Yep. At least one worldview will. But a lot of it is going to come from exposure to others who are different from us but have a similar interest. So that's that's one part of it. Another part of it is simply that I grew up in an environment of a working class family, a single mother who worked two, sometimes three jobs to support my two brothers and I. We were able to go to the local Catholic school through a scholarship from the school we got a lot of support from that community. We used to put back into that community by volunteering, by doing charity work in the local community and for other causes. You know. And it's always been important to me to some degree to pay back that kindness. Mm. I had a conversation with a, a colleague of mine. 
maybe 2006, 2007, and she had just finished a stint as treasurer of the Information Architecture Institute. So Donna Spencer is her name. And we subsequently went on to found UX Australia together. She and I were having a conversation and she said, you should get out and join the IA Institute and uh, get involved. And I, you know, I had things on. So, so, oh, I don't really think I would get much out of it. And she said, well, it's not about you getting something out of it. This is one of those times where you get to put something in. It's like, oh, I remember that. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah, you're right. I hadn't, right. I hadn't been thinking. I hadn't seen myself in that role right. for that community at yeah. that time. And so that that sort of switched things for me. So it ended up not being the IA Institute that I put time and energy into. In late 2008, I came up, just to solve a problem for myself, I came up with this concept of a, a book club for UX practitioners, UX book club. Um, I posted a description of what I had in mind to the IA Institute Forum and the Information Arch like the Interaction Design Association, the IXDA forums. If you're interested, let me know. I'm going to run one in Sydney. You know, it was around Thanksgiving, so late November 2008. I'm going to run one in Sydney um, in February, first Tuesday in February. Uh, if you want to do something similar, let me know. A week later, we had 20 locations around the world signed wow. up oh, and, wow. and starting to organize their first ones. I think the count is now about 168 locations around the world have run some number of them. Sydney is still running. It's it's had its 10th anniversary uh, at the beginning of this year. There are others around the world that have been running continuously for those 10 years. Thousands of people have read hundreds of books over that time. And it was really just an opportunity for the community to support one another to learn something because it's very yeah. hard to engage with professional books, especially if you're in an environment where you're on your own. This is before I had all these wonderful meld people around me. Yeah. I was on my own and just really not getting that kind of support, uh, like that intellectual support around me. So mm. that idea was to solve that problem for myself. The... Involvement with the Interaction Design Association started early just as a contributor to a discussion board, asking questions, providing answers to other people, sort of thinking about it. And there was a bit of, you know, sort of me getting something out of that and also me sort of contributing back. Yep. That started in like 2003. In 2009, I was in Memphis for the, uh, inter the, the Information Architecture Summit. And because I was going to be in Memphis, I was invited to the Savannah College of Art and Design to yep. give a public lecture. They were doing a design series. Um, every year they run this sort of lecture series. While I was there and giving that lecture, um, they invited the current president of the IXDA, Janet DeVilder, to come and see me talk and have dinner with us afterwards. We got talking, um, you know, like I'd been involved with the IXDA through the message board and the discussion board since it had been formed pretty much. Uh, and we were talking about the organization, where it was at and its challenges. By that stage, it was about 10,000 strong, you know, people around the world, people like myself in Australia. So we had a really good conversation that night about interaction design as a practice, interaction design community as a, a, a nascent but growing global thing. And about two months later, one of the directors in charge of communication resigned. And there was an opening on the board and I applied for it and was appointed. So I became a director of the IXDA in 2009. I served on the board for five years. I was the next president, so I was president for two. And it was an opportunity to work with that community to take us from, we were about 10,000 members when I, when I joined the board. We'd grown to about 75,000 wow. when I left the board. It's over 100,000 now. Yeah, so I left amazing. in 2014. So over that five-year period, it grew sevenfold and mm -hmm. then some. It had gone from 
a few dozen locations, local groups around the world to, I think it was about 130 when I left. I mean, there's so many associations out there that are having such trouble getting members. Uh What, What do you think the difference is there? We had a very clear and simple strategy. The number one was that it was free. The second is that, and this is one of the things that Jana and I worked on first, was that we defined the core of what interaction design was and didn't put a fence around it. Right. So at its heart, interaction design is this collection of things. These are the things that we find are important. Now, you in your practice might be good at some of them, interested in some of them, but it's enough for you to care and have an interest for you to come and join. Yep. We're not going to exclude you because you don't have a degree. We're not going to exclude you because you haven't passed an exam. Come. As a result, we were one of, as you say, one of the very few organizations, design organizations around the world that had anything like that kind of growth and influence over the conversation about what design was doing, you know, Mm. in that sort of technological space anyway, still, like it's everyone else is struggling. Um, And look, the traditional model of value as a member has been challenged time and time again. Unless you're something like an architect where you have to be registered and the Institute of Architects helps you to prepare for, you know, and gets you certified, then your membership dollars do what? And that question is being asked by the, you know, like, AGDA and AIGA yep. and by any any association any of them with all a, of them you know basis, any, yeah. any of them they're all sort of asking that question where you no longer have trade shows you no, no longer have at least not where you learn something because it's all available from the manufacturer on the internet if you want to go and touch it and feel it then a trade show might be a, a convenient place to do that but it doesn't have the same and it's, pull. It's lost that community aspect because, as you were saying, like you were you were doing the community aspect online anyway. anyway so. Yeah. Yep. So one of the other things, just sort of coming back to some of the community stuff, is that I think that if I roll back ten years in Australia, the design community there wasn't a design community focused on technology. Yeah. We had, you know, AGDA has been strong for a long, long time. The industrial designers have have got a strong community in Australia. Architects have a strong community in Australia. People who do interaction design, information architecture, UX, it broadly didn't exist. Mm. You, If you knew 10 people in your local city who did something similar to you, you were lucky. And if you got together even occasionally, that would be a surprise. The conferences that were available were academic or you had to go overseas. We had no sense of identity, no sense of a community, no cohesion. It's it's one of the reasons why UX Australia was founded. So the conference, UX Australia, was founded to try and overcome the lack of a good conference in Australia for practitioners to attend. Yeah. There were academic conferences. OzKai, which continues to this day, is a good academic conference, but not if you were a practitioner and not if you were interested in practical skills. You had to go overseas. You know, the IA Summit, the Interaction Conference, you had to go to the UPA Conference, Usability Professionals Association Conference, and they were all overseas. None of them mm. were here. And if you did go overseas to one of those things, you got to you know, mingle with five, six, seven, eight hundred people who were just like you. And then you come home again and you were isolated. So UX Book Club, local chapters of the IXDA, local chapters of UPA, and then UX Australia were all, all attempts to foster community here where we had both the support and those support mechanisms that allow people Again, who at the time were probably working in small teams. Yeah. You know, you didn't have big 
design teams working on technology the way we do now. You go somewhere like the ATO and the design team there's like 70, 80 strong sort yeah. of thing, you know. The number of designers working in Google in Sydney is is massive. Mm. You know, like it it didn't really exist ten or eleven years ago. And so these were all sort of ways of trying to fill those gaps. UX Australia now gets eight hundred people. Outside of South America, it's the biggest conference of its kind in in the Southern Hemisphere. The Interaction Conference in South America gets about fifteen hundred people. It's it's a big show, yeah. um, and it's great. UX Australia is the next biggest conference, and we're now in our eleventh year. You know, like it's, but one of our initial goals, you know, when we first met, when Donna and I sort of first sat down and went, what do we want this thing to achieve? giving the Australian UX community a point of focus, a chance to form its own identity and a chance to represent itself back to the rest of the world were three of our goals, you know? So we get a lot of local speakers as a result. We get some international ones as well because there are things that we want to learn from them. It's not all one way. Yeah. And we don't just want to talk to ourselves. We want to learn from things, interesting mm. things that are going on around the world as well. Yeah. That's going to take us to time. Okay. Before we finish up, yes. I've got one question. Okay. Can you tell us about the tattoo on your arm? I can. Because you don't seem like the tattoo sort of guy. No. So um, the, the for those who, who can't see it, which is everybody, <laughs> I have a tattoo on my right forearm, which is uh, two heartbeats. So it's it's an, an, an ECG um, and it's two heartbeats. It's my wife's heartbeat. And it was taken from an ECG that she had done. I, I usually add at this point that she's still alive, she's still with me. Yeah. It's not her last heartbeats or anything terrible like that. I had been toying with this idea and I sort of fixed on this idea of getting a copy of an ECG from her cardiologist. And there it is. There we are. Very yeah. cool. Wow. It's, it's kind of unique. It's, um, it's uniquely her yeah. as well. Um, yeah. So how can people find more about you? Where do you live online? Do you interact with people online? I, I do via Twitter, Doc Beatty on Twitter, mm-hmm. D-O-C-B-A-T-Y. I tend to uh, variously rant about design or cycling or my kids online. <laughs> Sometimes um, all three at once. All three at once, <laughs> yeah. I am on LinkedIn at Steve Beatty, the Meld website, meldstudios.com.au. I'm on Strava, Steve Beatty. You know, if, if you want to follow my cycling ex- exploits, mm-hmm. that's a that's a good place to follow. It's not really exciting, but it's it's there. <laughs> and otherwise, at, at some of these events, I'll be in San Diego in uh, September for World Interaction Day in, in San Diego. Otherwise, around the traps in Sydney or Melbourne. We didn't get to talk about it, but uh, obviously good design... Council Australia, which you're a part of as well, so they yes. can find you on that. Yes, the you know the council advises the awards, the Good Design Awards. That's been a lot of fun over the last six or seven years. Uh, but yeah, excellent. And Matt, Matt underscore Leach, cool Instagram. You can find me at Flynn Tracy on everything, and you can find this episode and more at AUSDesignRadio.com, and you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram and SoundCloud at AUSDesign. Radio. I had almost, a, almost forgot. Almost what. forgot what we were doing. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.